Welcome to The Dialectic, a Fair Observer podcast by the Rajput and the Wasp. I'm Atul Singh, the founder, CEO and editor-in-chief of Fair Observer. I'm the Rajput. And I'm Glenn Carl, and I am the Wasp, uh, speaking to you actually not far, only a few kilometers from where my ancestors literally uh, were the first Englishmen to set foot uh, in North America after those of Jamestown who we don't count, actually. Uh, if you're from New England, you don't count them. Uh, in our last episode, we discussed democracy and some of its travails. Uh, in this episode today, we will make sense of Vladimir Putin. Uh, thank you, Glenn. We, we are going to be discussing Putin uh, after our discussion on democracy. Well, in the West, uh, or in the Western democracies, the conventional view of Putin is that he's an opportunist thug. Many uh, retired CIA officers, ex-MI6 agents, diplomats, uh, politicians, academics, etc. subscribe to this point. In fact, uh, when we wrote our uh, last uh, article, our magnum opus on Vladimir Putin, which you must read, it's on Fair Observer, it's a rather long term, uh, one of our friends wrote back saying that he disagreed with us. He just uh, thought we were ascribing too much motive and strategy to, to um, Putin. Now, obviously, Glenn and I disagree. Yeah, I wasn't surprised uh, that our friend and our, our colleague um, responded as he did, uh, saying that, gosh, you're, you're giving too much strategic um, depth to Putin. Uh, he's an opportunist leading uh, in a uh, precarious way a struggling country with many problems, and, and those statements are true. Uh, but I think what generally happens is that uh, officers who uh, work in the world that I did, in diplomacy and intelligence, uh, by uh, necessity uh, focus on the immediate. Uh, that's the job. Uh, and I actually had a, a superior of mine one time uh, dismissively uh, shut me down when I was trying to explain the cultural and historical uh, context of specific events in the Middle East. And he told me not to bother him with sociology just to go find the terrorists. Uh, but that was uh, really uh, missing, making it impossible to have the, uh, the depth of understanding of, uh, of foreign actors in, in a, I think, and Atul uh, agrees, I'm sure, uh, a necessary way to make good policy and to understand things well. So certainly Putin is a ruthless murderer and an opportunist. Those, thing, those statements are true. Those are facts. But I have come progressively to consider him an unusually competent leader. Opportunistic, yes, but a man with uh, an incisive mind and good foreign policy judgment, uh, I think less good foreign judgment with regard to domestic policy, since he is, I think, in some ways eating the seed corn of his stability by imposing strength, uh, uh, guaranteeing his strength domestically by ruthless acts. But, but that's not what we're talking about today. And he is certainly an activist who has managed to keep the West, and in particular the United States, progressively really on the defensive. And he acts opportunistically, but within and towards a coherent strategic objective. Very impressive. So what has happened? Well, um, 
you've all been uh, listening to the news or watching it on television or skimming it on your cell phones or um, tablets or laptops or desktops, uh, we know there are 100,000 Russian troops mobilized on the Ukrainian border. Less well-known is the build-up in Kaliningrad, the Russian enclave northwest of Belarus between Poland and Lithuania. Even less uh, well-known is the recent joint naval exercise Russia did with China. Russian and Chinese naval ships circumnavigated Japan's main island. And, of course... Um, and if I could, Atul, if I could just jump in for a moment, that sounds okay, the naval exercise. But that is the first time, I believe, since yes. World War II, which is 75 years, uh, that the uh, Russia or the Soviet Union or China have done uh, such a, uh, an act. Oh, I don't think China has ever done such an act. China was not in a position to. So uh, yes. this is all new, that the Russian... Chinese uh, circumnavigation is completely new. It is extremely important. It has massive consequences, and it, it is not given its due importance. And to top it, Moscow is demanding strict limits on the activities of the U.S.-led NATO military alliance in Eastern Europe. It is saying, oh, you cannot deploy troops, you cannot have missiles uh, in places that could be a threat to Russia. Um, it wants NATO no longer to play a role in the three Baltic republics of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, or for that matter, in highly vulnerable Poland. And uh, it wants a guarantee that uh, Ukraine and Georgia would never join NATO. Now, all these are almost impossible demands. So it is clear that Russia is ratcheting up the pressure. Yeah, absolutely. Which which leads us to, I think, the, the next question in the... Uh, analysts um, list of tasks or obligations, which is the, a higher order of difficulty. We've uh, looked at what is going on, and that is critical. Uh, that is uh, our job. We can't understand unless we know what is going on. But the next question is, why is Putin making these moves? Uh, it's an easier question to address than what should one do about it, which we'll get to. Uh, but to understand why is, is central. And, and I would say the meat of the issue for us uh, today and for anyone watching international relations concerning Russia at the moment. And I'd put it, I'd summarize with three rubrics or categories to help understand it. And these are the effects of history, philosophy, and culture um, on Russia and on, on Putin and his policymaking uh, choices. Now, what does that mean? It means that... Uh, much of what Russia does is driven, frankly, by a resentment, certainly in the last 30 years. Uh, over the uh, years and during Atul's and my respective careers at different parts of the world, each of us has spoken to and interacted with numerous uh, Russian counterparts, colleagues, and friends uh, who are working or were working in intelligence or defense or diplomatic circles. And one theme repeatedly, almost invariably, crops up. Uh, the United States and the West treated Russia imperiously and dismissively after the catastrophic collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 uh, and the loss of uh, the Soviet position as uh, the uh, one of two great powers in the world. But it's also not just resentment. It's an aggressive, what Putin is doing and 
the policy choices of the last months that our tool um, outlines is also an aggressive pursuit of historic Russian objectives that, that go far, uh, much further back in history than the relatively brief period of uh, Soviet Russia. Russia is seeking a, has always sought to have a sphere of influence international order rather than a normative international one, which the universalist culture uh, America, uh, the United States, uh, has uh, created since 1945. It seeks also, Russia seeks to have uh, predominance, hegemony in what it calls its near abroad and what uh, the West, until the fall of the Berlin Wall called uh, Central Europe uh, or Eastern Europe. Uh, and it has consistently, Russia and prior to Russia, the Soviet Union, almost re reflexively has uh, viewed uh, international relations as a zero-sum game, in particular with its great rival and enemy, the United States, and it has sought invariably to cut uh, the U.S. rival down at least a notch, if not to render it um, uh, incapable of functioning. And then finally, uh, the Russians, uh, Putin, quite strategically, consistently, and ardently are seeking to uh, reassert Russia's role as a great power, uh, in one of the great powers in the world. So this brings us back, uh, or rather I will take us back, to the roots of Russian resentment. And uh, perhaps... Uh, it's best expressed in the words of uh, Janine Fedel, who wrote a great article uh, which was titled The Harvard Boys Do Russia. And uh, the truth is, the Harvard Boys did Russia. Of course, uh, Glenn is a Harvard boy as well. I hope he wasn't one of them. I, 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 I am I, a gentleman. I, <laughs> I, would never, I would never say anything like that. Anyway, but uh, the important thing is that what, who were these Harvard boys? These Harvard boys were economists. They came in after the collapse of the Cold War with this idea that uh, the uh, move to a market economy, a quick move to the market economy, was the best way forward. Um, their uh, uh, policies led to the misappropriation both of Western aid and the plunder of Russian wealth. Uh, the local villains in this story are Boris Fyodorov, Anatoly Chubais, and um, Gegor Gaidar. To this day, these names are hated in Russia. The starring villain, of course, is a Harvard boy and economist, Jeffrey Sachs. He was then a high-flying 38-year-old who arrived in Moscow to transform the Russian economy through shock therapy. Now, this shock therapy was a complete unmitigated disaster because uh, privatizing an economy before establishing a functioning legal and juridical system invariably and inevitably leads to overwhelming corruption and concentration of wealth. In other words, uh, a thug's kleptocracy. And what shock therapy led to was asset stripping, massive impoverishment, runaway inflation. In fact, in 1995, inflation averaged 204.91%. Now, even as if I could just jump in for a, a moment on that, Atul. Yeah. At the time, I was I worked closely with uh, a relatively large number of Russian counterparts, <clears throat> and I specifically, distinctly, recall um, one gentleman in particular <clears throat> in anger and dismay 
um, speaking to me with some uh, acid in his voice about the policies that were being pushed on uh, on Russia, <clears throat> because uh, although highly educated, uh, very talented, and in the Russian context, a person of status, achievement, and uh, relatively high income, uh, it was literally impossible for him to survive on the income that was generated, given the uh, catastrophes occurring in the Russian, the implosion of the Russian economy and the explosion of inflation. Yeah, and, and, and to to give that statistical perspective, in in nine years, Russian per capita annual income cratered. It went from three thousand four hundred forty dollars to one thousand seven hundred ten dollars. Russian economy founded, poverty soared, life expectancy sank, and um, Sachs' recommendations brought, as Stiglitz, Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz stingingly put it, Gucci bags, Mercedes, and the fruits of capitalism to a few, and misery and humiliation to 148 million Russians. You know, this is a, it's a tragedy in so many on so many levels. Um, Jeffrey Sachs was um, applying his policies of uh, shock therapy at the time and was successful in, in implementing them, which led to the, the crises that Atul has uh, touched upon. Uh, but his voice was not the only one. And since that is what happened, that is what is significant, certainly to Russians. That's the history. That's the reality that occurred. But at the time, there were large numbers of American officials uh, who were aware of the dangers of uh, shock therapy and who were trying. Uh, and I know because I was, uh, in a very, in a small way, part of the effort <clears throat> to uh, first uh, implement um, uh, the rule of law, impartial rule of law. Uh, and to establish a private property, which for people in the West is an almost inconceivable point to, to imagine. Uh, there, nothing uh, belonged to anyone. No one owned anything, of course, by definition in the Soviet communist economy. And you think, well, okay, then we'll just have private property now. But how? How does that happen without uh, opening uh, vast possibilities for graft, theft, Kleptocracy, as Atul said, uh, abuse, concentration of wealth, um, and uh, terrible poverty. Uh, it's, it's an almost impossible uh, task to go from zero to, from nothing to something. Uh, I'll, I'll just make one, I won't take us too tangentially off base, but when my ancestors, when the Europeans arrived in America, one of the tragic realities uh, that led to the ultimate destruction, frankly, of uh, Indian nations, the, the, the first uh, uh, Native Americans, uh, was that the um, Indian cultures had no private property. They had no sense. It did not exist. The concept was alien. It's like describing a color to someone who is blind. You cannot do it. And, of course, for the, my English ancestors, property was everything. Uh, and so it led to uh, hundreds of years of misunderstanding and ultimately to the uh, ruination of the Indian nations. Similarly, going from 
a Soviet economy where no one, where property does not exist, to one where it does exist from one day to the next is essentially, Jeffrey Sachs was um, obliging be the case, uh, led to uh, catastrophes that we are still living with today. Now, uh, importantly, uh, this uh, happened perhaps more out of uh, ignorance than intention. But the Russians, uh, they, they view this as part of a malevolent conspiracy. Now, in our view, uh, Sachs was guilty of hubris. Uh, but if, from the Russian point of view, Sachs was planning and plotting as part of um, a, a grand American design to first destroy the American economy. Then the, the Russian the economy. economy. The Russian economy, sorry. First, to destroy the Russian economy. Uh, my apologies. Uh, first, destroy the Russian economy. Once the Russian economy was not just on its knees, but on its back. Then second, expand NATO. And then third, just take over the Russian spheres of influence. And fourth, to make Russia a rump state and a vassal of the United States. You, and, you know, Atul, I think for most Americans and probably people, most people in the West who are only casual, um, pay casual attention to uh, the Russian psyche and Russian uh, foreign affairs, which will be the case for most people. Most people have their own lives to live. It's a very small subset of people whose job it is to understand what Russia is doing or what the United States is doing. They, they are either truck drivers or surgeons or, or singers or you know, they, have, they have their lives. But it almost sounds like a cartoon to me as someone who has devoted his life to foreign affairs. That characterization, a description that Atul gave, almost sounds like a caricature, like something out of a cartoon. Uh, but I can state categorically that uh, almost every Russian official with whom I have dealt uh, shares that, um, sincerely uh, uh, believes in that, uh, that explanation of American objectives and actions and uh, has always viewed uh, my efforts to uh, counter those arguments as either um, proofs that I'm an effective CIA officer because I'm disingenuous or that I am uh, a typical American because I am hopelessly naive. And, and uh, Putin personifies, the former KGB officer, personifies Russian resentment completely. He, he reveals a lot in his articles, his speeches, and his press conferences. In fact, key, the key to his thinking on Ukraine lies in his article uh, from 12 July 2021, in which he said Russians and Ukrainians were one people, a single whole. And he talks about the 17th century liberation of the Russian Orthodox people from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, whom he still blames uh, a few centuries down the line for the social and religious oppression of the Russians. He blames Vladimir Lenin as well, um, who, when he forced the Soviet Union in 1922, gave constituent republics the right to succeed, which was incorporated in the 1924 constitution. Putin blames Lenin, one Vladimir blames another for the parade of sovereignties. Well, 
And and these uh, allusions to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, I know for most Americans, will seem a hopelessly abstruse and remote allusion, which therefore uh, one couldn't take too seriously. Um, what is the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth? Of course, this is profoundly naive, and it just shows that Americans, the American cultural universe is really far away from the old world's uh, concerns. However, just as I make jokes about and Atul teases me about, uh, and even my wife teases me about being um, this stereotypical wasp and obsessed with the 17th century uh, ancestors I had, um, they, they are vitally um, relevant. They truly are to what shaped uh, American culture today. Uh, that's not a, a vanity statement. That's, that's a fact. Similarly, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the war, wars it had with the Russian Empire, uh, in Ukraine in particular, uh, about which we'll talk uh, in a moment, um, is no further away in time. And in fact, is, uh, 50, it's only 350 years away, not 400 years away, as the, as the pilgrims were. It is truly a legitimate, relevant, painful um, way for uh, Russians, and yet, yes, for Russians to view uh, their history. Now, it, it is self-absorbed, and I, and I think wrong in many ways, but it is, uh, it is not Putin inventing a rationalization for his policies. He, he is uh, shaped uh, in his views, as are many Russians, by these uh, deep historical resonances with Central Europe. And and remember, Putin has called the collapse of the Soviet Union the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. He has argued that this epidemic of collapse spilled into Russia itself. Uh, repeatedly, he points out that 25 million Russians became foreigners in their own homes overnight from no, Lithuania. Right. Sorry, right. carry no, on, Glenn. Well, there, this is an important um, uh, point to, to uh, illustrate how his view is sincere and yet also dangerously skewed, and, and dangerous is, is an operative word in this context. Well, it's true that um, Russians with the fall of the Soviet Union, who resided in what are now independent countries and were prior to the Soviet Union also frequently independent countries, that these Russians now are no longer citizens of Russia. This is what Putin uses to justify many of his actions with regard to Ukraine. Uh, but one has there, and, and then he characterizes the Ukrainian policies and NATO policies and American policies with regard to Ukraine and Russia uh, uh, as illegitimate because derived from and thus tainted by uh, Nazi propaganda. That's true as far as it goes, meaning that, uh, yes, uh, when the uh, Nazis invaded Ukraine as part of the Soviet Union, many Ukrainians welcomed the Nazis as liberators. Now, why did they do that? Because under Stalin, uh, they had been uh, treated as vassals. And uh, the Stalinist regime, Stalin's regime, killed 3.9 million Ukrainians in 15 years. Uh, so, yes, the Ukrainians were looking for relief from an almost genocidal uh, regime out of Moscow. Now, it's true that uh, the Ukrainians quickly discovered that the Nazis were um, 
equal opportunity massacres, massacreers and murderers and uh, killed three million Ukrainians. So the poor Ukrainians headed from west and east. Uh, but uh, the self-serving version of history of Putin uh, omits such awkward facts and yet is sincerely held by uh, him and his colleagues. So what Putin is now bringing in is Tsarism without the Tsar, or, or rather Putin as the new Tsar. Out is the Soviet Union as if it was just uh, a fleeting invasion of Russia, just as the Mongols came and left. Of course, the Soviet Union has left many things behind. Uh, and Putin himself is a product of the Soviet Union. He's a KGB trained officer. But what has happened really is that Putin has gone back to the pre-World War I pan-Slavic and imperial um, Russia. Uh, the historiography is back. Uh, the, um, the philosophers are back. In fact, um, I mean, it is true that and well known that Putin was inspired by Max Otto von Stirlitz, the Soviet James Bond. Uh, but his life was appended by 1989 when the Berlin Wall collapsed and Moscow was silent. And, and Putin and millions of Russians have now reverted to Russian nationalism. Out goes the idea, that uh, silly idea of communism, and in comes a more deeper identity, uh, a, a, a sense of nationalism, a sense of pride, um, which at its core is orthodox, Slavic, and autocratic. The Russian Orthodox Church, persecuted during the Soviet era, has made a spectacular comeback. You'll often see Putin uh, dipping into freezing waters of a cross-shaped pool to observe Orthodox Christian rituals, such as Epiphany or, you know, um, and you'll also see the glamorization and glorification of Cossacks, who were the sword arm of Tsarist Russia. So it's interesting that you now have Tsarism without the Tsar, or rather Tsarism with Putin as the new Tsar, as I often say. It, yes, it really is an ironic comment on history of how fleeting, and uh, although 75 years in, in existence, and, and superficial were, um, in the end, the uh, communist uh, revolution and its effects on, on Russian, uh, the Russian soul. Uh, it's hard to see uh, what happened. I think just as the Mongols became uh, Sinified when they uh, conquered uh, China and, and became indistinguishable almost, at least from a non-Chinese person, from uh, culturally from the Chinese whom they had conquered. Similarly, the, the communists really became philosophically and morally uh, and in foreign policy terms, orthodox uh, Russians. Uh, it's it's uh, a lesson in, in history and the superficiality of culture and the depth, the uh, superficiality of philosophy and the depth of culture, I think. The, the um, so I'm sorry, go ahead, Dr. Pardon me. No, I, I was about to say that uh, um, it seems that interests trump ideology and, and culture trumps philosophy most of the time. Yeah, yeah, I would. One can wonder why, as, as some of my colleagues felt, and many of them exceptionally uh, brilliant uh, people, uh, wonder about the utility of modern uh, philosophy. But that's that's a subject for a different discussion, which would bore so many that we would have only one person listening to us, I think. Um, 
to revert to the far more engaging issue of Russian culture and motivations for their foreign policy gambits, uh, I think what we've been talking about really is that this collective, uh, the Russian soul, the Russian identity, Russian culture, that is, uh, and Putin is quite not normally, uh, you know, profoundly a Russian uh, nationalist, uh, how does it, uh, is it distinguished from uh, the West? And it, Western, Russians have always, almost always viewed Western individualism and cosmopolitanism as uh, decadent uh, infections of the uh, true organic, historic Russian, great Russian soul. The, the strength and the stability of the Russian state has always taken precedence over human rights, which are part of this cosmopolitan, decadent uh, infection from outside. Uh, in what Putin is making a new Russia, it's really uh, old Russia resurgent. And in it, uh, this goes back to Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, uh, Catherine the Great, and Stalin. Uh, respect for the ruler is sacrosanct. And Putin has become quite effectively, successfully, uh, a father figure for a powerful and a strong nation that can once again project its power where it wishes and be um, beholden to or humiliated by uh, no one. So we've had after the humiliating years of a weak Mikhail Gorbachev and a drunken Boris Yeltsin, two characterizations I don't really subscribe to, but uh, certainly widespread in, in Russia, Russians many, a large majority, according to polling, Russians see Putin as a leader who has finally restored dignity to a great nation and people. Now, building on from what Glenn has said, if you, if you look at what inspires Putin, and we won't go into it in much detail, those of you who are interested can read our article, uh, Making Sense of Vladimir Putin's Long Game on Fair Observer. But if you want to look at the philosophers who animate Putin, there's Lev Gumilev, and uh, he spent time in the Siberian Gulag, and his idea of passionarnost, uh, I may be mispronouncing it, and apologies to the Russian listeners for all my r Russian pronunci pronunciations. Um, but what this word uh, means, as, as I understand it, as my Russian friends tell me, is a human capacity for suffering, a, a very Russian capacity to, to, to be able to suffer for an idea or an ideal. Uh, he is inspired, Putin is also inspired by Ivan Ilin, uh, an influential pan-Slavic Russian nationalist who actually died in Switzerland. And Putin um, had his remains flown over and consecrated his grave. And of course, uh, the modern-day evangelist uh, Alexander Dugin, who keeps talking about uh, uh, as uh, to many others of asymmetric war, etc. But all these three are inspired by this idea of Eurasianism, which is very distinct to the pan-Atlantic Anglo-Saxon universalist ideology. Russia is a land power, land-based power. Russia, Russia spans two continents. Russia is unique in its identity. Russia is the true inheritor of the great... Uh, uh, nomadic warriors of the steppes, um, whether the Mongols or the Huns. Or, uh, Russia is the modern Eurasian power and therefore must project um, its status accordingly. 
what comes to mind powerfully to me is a conversation I had a number of years ago with a, a Russian counterpart when um, I was, as I said earlier, uh, I was trying uh, to play my part uh, in in helping uh, Russia transition from the Soviet uh, years to a, a society and a, a, um, a government which had the rule of law and uh, private property and individual rights. And so in some frustration, I said to my Russian counterpart, well, look, are you guys Western or are you Eastern? And it was, it was a revealingly naive question on my part. Uh, and he looked at me in, in very polite, but nonetheless detectable disdain because it, my question revealed my ignorance. And he said, well, of course, we are neither, and we are both, uh, Western and Eastern. And uh, really, um, Atul spoke, uh, just mentioned some hugely important names in the evolution of Russian uh, thinking and Putin's thought um, and uh, what drives and shapes his policy decisions. But I think for most of us, perhaps more accessible is just anyone who has read uh, Dostoevsky or um, uh, Solzhenitsyn. Uh, or Pasternak uh, will find these elements of the uh, the Russian uh, soul, uh, where the the nation uh, is not Western, and it does, and it is deeply associated with Russian Orthodoxy, uh, and an almost millennial um, view of uh, Russia as uh, the heart of civilization. Uh, I suppose all civilizations view themselves that way, but certainly it's powerful when one reads the, some of the, the greatest writers in, in human history. Of more relevance to me and to us on a policy context, however, is someone I have considered and taught as being one of the seminal important figures of the 21st century, and uh, he's virtually unknown, uh, and he, his, he was an aide to uh, Vladimir Putin. His name is Vladislav Surkov. And he has uh, created a, uh, an intensified uh, version of uh, propaganda and disinformation as um, tools of foreign policy. Now, all intelligence services, or at least those for major powers, will engage in uh, covert action uh, operations sometimes to try to affect the opinions of their, uh, their uh, rivals. But Surkov has elevated this to uh, a degree of uh, aggressiveness and efficiency that has never uh, been uh, reached before, uh, not even by uh, Joseph Goebbels in the, in the Nazi regime, uh, who was, frankly, a spiritual uh, father of uh, Surkov. And we have seen that uh, through Surkov, um, Surkov's uh, recommendations, Putin has embraced uh, quite wisely, uh, a foreign policy that relies strongly on asymmetric uh, actions. Uh, Putin realizes that the Russian economy is uh, far smaller, 14 times smaller than the American one, and only a fool would wish to have a war, but you can avoid war by uh, using indirect covert actions. And we have seen that the Russian intelligence services under Putin have become very aggressive in creating overseas puppet political parties, uh, influencing political parties to include American political parties, fake social media accounts, and, and Surkov and the Russian intelligence services, all intelligence services, 
are aided greatly by uh, technological changes with the rise of the internet and digitization of every individual on earth uh, so that well uh, Surkov's express objective is to create a world in which uh, reality is almost impossible to uh, discern the truth is impossible to discern and uh, I speak literally about that and that therefore the state who is pulling these strings can shape reality so as to discredit its opponents and consolidate its power by creating a reality that doesn't exist but that is believed to be so. We saw this uh, shockingly in 2016 uh, in the American uh, election. And uh, I'll just uh, conclude on Serkov by saying that he has married um, disinformation with modern technology and the monarchical archetype of how to govern Russia to uh, enable Putin to become, to become uh, the modern-day Russian czar. So why do Putin and Russia matter? Well, there are practical implications for the present and future. Uh, for a start, for a start, uh, it's very important to remember, and most people forget, uh, that Putin has said repeatedly, if I remember correctly, that the liberal idea has outlived its purpose. Western views on gender, culture and power must not be allowed to overshadow the culture traditions um, and traditional family values of millions of people making up the core population. So what uh, Putin is doing is uh, he is uh, he is laying down a marker to challenge the West. This is not just an opportunistic, OK, let's move uh, a few troops in Ukraine and let's stir the pot a little bit in Hungary. Let's uh, cause a pinprick in Lithuania. Let's have uh, some gas diplomacy or gas wars with Ukraine and, 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 and let Europe freeze, especially the Germans. Or let's have Nord Stream 2 and, and uh, divide uh, Europe. Or let's uh, have uh, a new gas pipeline with China. Uh, there is something deeper going on. You know, for all of uh, Atul's and my uh, description of Surkov uh, uh, or uh, Putin's actions or specific issues with regard to Ukraine or Lithuania or uh, flotillas in the South China Sea and so on, to a shocking degree, uh, really nothing has changed for 400 years. Uh, this is not just true for Russia, it's in general true. Um, but from Ivan the Terrible to Peter the Great to Catherine the Great to uh, Russian pan-Slavism driving Russian policy prior to World War I to Lenin's ostensible revolution, which culturally really was not, uh, to Stalin and now to Putin. Uh, well, what has changed in Russia's strategic objectives and justifications? And, and I would argue almost nothing. Well, the Russian president, to go bring it down to modern times, the Russian president uh, wants and has always sought to restore Russia's greatness and reestablish hegemony over its near abroad. That's the so Russian. One, that's how they characterize what we view as Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, the bordering states, which are all smaller, of course, than the behemoth Russia, uh, as it's near abroad and is rightfully under Russian hegemony. 
exactly. So number one, this means assertion in Ukraine, foment trouble in Poland, back anti-West characters in places like Hungary, and uh, constantly stir the pot, but make sure it doesn't boil over. Second, have asymmetric war. Make the West in general, and in particular the US, bleed. It's payback for Afghanistan. So what do you do? The Wagner group is in Syria, the, it is in Libya, it is in Mali. Then, of course, we've mentioned Surkov's number three, the Surkov misinformation campaigns, particularly when there are elections in various countries, all the way from Poland and Hungary to the US itself. Number four, um, and here, you know, Glenn may have a slightly different take, balance of power. So do gas deals uh, and joint exercises with China so that uh, if the West imposes sanctions, you can wriggle out of it. And China, of course, which fears the Straits of Malacca chokehold, uh, gets fuel uh, because China, like Japan, lacks energy and is very vulnerable in war. So, you know, you, you develop uh, an entente with China, similar to World War I, pre-World War I, actually, except that the entente was with France and England at that time. Um, flirt with uh, Modi. He, Putin just uh, flew down to Delhi and, and signed a few deals. And that also helps um, uh, in some ways counterbalancing the West. Uh, number five, continue reasserting the great power role globally, wherever, wherever you can. Uh, and, and if you don't have the economy, Russia certainly doesn't have the economy, then use arms exports. Russia is the second largest arms uh, exporter and of course, energy. So, so these are the practical things which, which Russia is going to do, and this will have consequences for the global economy, for people's businesses as well. I think I would only um, differ really in, in, on one point, and there I take an even darker view than your characterization. I think, I think it's quite clear, really, and, and I'm not speaking as a reflexive, visceral, cold warrior anti-Soviet here. I think, I, I think that I'm... I'm deriving my assessment from objective, uh, verifiable facts that, that Russia doesn't just seek to make the U.S. bleed, but they do. They they view relations with the United States, in particular, as a zero-sum game, and they have sought, and it's been quite clearly demonstrated in 2016. But not only then, not just to make the U.S. bleed, but to make the United States a, a dysfunctional government in power. The, the more chaos there is domestically in the United States, the less capable the United States is acting coherently uh, or being, a, uh, being able to assert its own uh, objectives uh, and power uh, outside of the U.S. borders. Uh, so they aren't just seeking to make us bleed, but actually to bring the U.S. down. They, they don't care uh, because for them that is helping Russia go up. Now, there is, of course, uh, a risk that this controlled chaos might spill out of control. Uh, by ratcheting up the pressure, Russia is making the world more dangerous, even if it may be making Russia great again. And Putin is getting older, and there is the risk that in Russia itself, now that you have this, uh, this uh, magic potion of nationalism, a more radical figure than Putin might take over. And... Uh, on, on, a, on a more uh, practical note for a lot of uh, other democracies, Russia might just succeed in playing divide and rule through Surkov's tactics within these democracies and make them more dysfunctional. 
and on a more uh, wider wider level, Russian actions might eventually trigger a wider conflict. Remember, no one really wanted war before World War I. Everyone was saber-rattling, but eventually the world did blunder into a world war, and it was a devastating, terrifying war. I just came back from Woodrow Wilson's birthplace in Stanton, and uh, when I saw uh, the replica of a First World War, a World War I ditch, it brought to me yet again in a way uh, that history books never quite do, the horror of World War I. And I think uh, it is a real risk, a wider conflict is a real risk, which is, um, which is uh, underestimated by most people and underpriced in almost all markets. Well, the, I, I guess I would just conclude with two points. Uh, I think one to echo or amplify, perhaps, I don't know, um, your remark. Uh, Putin, I'm confident, doesn't seek a war. Only, a, uh, I think, perhaps a madman uh, would uh, seek a war among great powers, given the horrors that that would, would lead to. Uh, but uh, he is a, a brinksman and a foreign policy realist and aggressive. And the, the problem with policies like this for anyone, uh, any leader, is that uh, it only takes one individual to make one mistake or to misunderstand slightly uh, his or her orders. Um, the Soviet Union and the United States, as most of you will know, uh, narrowly averted a nuclear war in 1962, but other times also. But in 1962, there were a number of incidents during the October uh, missile crisis. But, but one was a, a U-2 spy plane for the CIA was expressly ordered not to fly over Cuban airspace so as not to provoke um, the Soviets or the Cubans. And he uh, made an, an error with navigation, and he flew over uh, Cuba and was shot down and uh, fortunately for us all, uh, Khrushchev decided to make nothing of that publicly, and the Americans never acknowledged it at the time. Uh, but had they, um, had even a regional commander acted on his orders in uh, the Soviet army, or the Americans acted on their orders in the American army, uh, they were ordered to fire in cases uh, like that. That would have uh, led to a, an exchange. Uh, so that can happen uh, with what Putin is doing, of course, now. And uh, the uh, last thing I would say, I guess, is a somewhat relativizing comment. We've painted a tool and I a, a, a tale of a coherent, strategic, and effective uh, Putin. And that is, I think, true. But he is an opportunist, and, and he doesn't have any more mastery over events or his bureaucracies than any other leader. And I can tell you that bureaucracies are almost impossible to control uh, that well, very well. Uh, they generate their, their own inertia and momentum. And Russia, um, as some of our more, uh, I think, classically or conventionally minded colleagues in the intelligence services and diplomatic corps have argued to us, uh, Russia has a world of problems. Uh, domestic uh, stability, economic uh, um, inefficiency and sclerosis, um, a, uh, a quote, uh, ally who is actually a, a huge uh, uh, problem in China with uh, a Siberia, Siberia that is empty, but uh, not empty if you're across the border in China. 
uh, and on and on. So it's hardly a, a uh, flawless leviathan or Russian bear, uh, and it has many problems that can uh, undo many of the plays that uh, Putin is making. Uh, but it, he is a strategic, uh, coherent, historically consistent, aggressive, and talented tactician opportunist acting within a, uh, a larger historic uh, framework. Well, very well said, Glenn. Our entire endeavor here at The Dialectic is to make sense of the world. If you have questions, if you have suggestions, if you want to get in touch, please find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and of course, our website, fairobserver.com. Do follow us on social media, sign up for our newsletter, download our app. It's available both on Apple and Android. We look forward to our journey together and uh, making sense of the world. I'll see you next time. <laughs>